This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again to another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another great guest for you. He's uh, got a lot of parks in the Florida region, so it'll be interesting to hear his take on that. We don't have a lot of uh, clients and buyers and, and guests here that do Florida as, uh, as their primary market, so I'm eager to hear more about it. Uh, please help me welcome my guest, Nick Yale. Nick, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, thank you, Ferd. Yeah, well, good. Well, tell us tell us your background and tell us how you got into MH. And and I'm curious to hear more about um, your your able to, ability to consolidate a number of parks in you know one you know, kind of tight geographic region, which which has a lot of benefits. Uh, the biggest con is it's sometimes hard to pull off. Um, so right. I'm eager to, eager to hear how you've been able to do it. Yeah, well, well, thanks. So, so we we started looking for mobile home parks in in the middle of 2020, and we closed on our first deal. It was a 44 unit, uh, 55 plus park here in Florida in uh, the beginning of 2021. Um, since then, we've we've acquired 10 parks total. We've sold one. You know, the, our smallest currently is 27, and our largest is a 67. So we're kind of in the, I guess, medium size range. Uh, we we really like RV, which has been uh, something we've been focusing on for the last two months. Is is these long term RV parks? Um, you know, we we self manage all of our own properties. We do our management in house, and we we try to use tech as much as we can. Okay, great. So tell me more about you. You like RV because there's a lot of people who jumped into MH for all the the pros of what we all know about the benefits of MH compared to say multifamily apartments, and more and more people are jumping in the RV space in part because yeah, MH has gotten so competitive. RV has its own competitiveness too. But uh, tell me, tell me, kind of why you why you prefer that model or why you've gone in that route. Well, the reason ma- mainly being is we found that there's a little bit less competition on the front end when we're looking for them. I think a lot of mom and pops owners of RV parks, I think they get burned out maybe faster than the mobile home parks because um, even though we buy long term parks, there's there's still some transiency. They're still a bit harder to manage. But what we really like about then besides that operationally is they're a lot less regulated here in Florida from a landlord tenant standpoint, such as we can increase our rents more than once a year. Um, if the tenant is um, in our park less than six months, uh, we can we can evict them with a 24 hour ejection notice, essentially. Now, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. It, now, we've had issues where the sheriff won't actually enforce it, but usually they they will. So we we like that flexibility. But also what we found is that they really, at least the ones that we buy, these these true long term RV parks and these good Florida markets, um, you know, our revenue doesn't fluctuate very much. I mean, some of our rent rolls, they might deviate on these less than 5% per month, which might not be too different than a mobile home park in that same market. So we found that, you know, they, they're, they're very similar in terms of how we can manage them. And they've been a little bit easier to acquire. Uh, they, they do require more management oversight um, as well. Like sometimes, um, you know, we might need to use a, a management software like CampSpot in conjunction with Rent Manager if we're buying one that isn't, you know, where occupancy isn't high in the beginning. We have some that we run on both of those, um, both of those platforms. But, um, you know, I would say those are probably the, the, the biggest 
things that we like about it is really it's that landlord tenant flexibility that we have and um, the fact that, you know, we stay pretty full. Okay. Now tell me how camp spot enhances that. Cause I'm, I'm familiar with that program. I don't have it myself. I don't have much RV. Our, my RV is basically just a, a, you know, sprinkled in with my MH, but I, I know that the, you know, there's dynamic pricing and other, okay. you know, uh, hospitality esque features that, you know, some of the regular property services don't have as well. Yeah, exactly. So what we like about camp spot is that camp spot has a marketplace it's kind of like Airbnb. So it actually generates a lot of traffic from, from, from that marketplace. So, you know, we have a park that we recently bought in Ocala. It was 67 lots, About half of those were occupied with long-term, true long-term residents when we took over the park. But the other half, um, we've implemented camp spot to help get that occupancy up. And so far, you know, we're doing about out of that park, maybe 25 to 30% of the revenue today on a monthly basis is actually coming from those camp spot people, which is, it's those short-term stays that camp spot brings in a lot of them, you know, they end up converting to long-term stays because it's, it gives us that exposure. We're just able to reach more people because from a advertising standpoint, we're not really doing very much. We just have a Google pin. We have a good website and, you know, we answer the phone. So camp spot kind of gives us that extra market exposure. Um, it is kind of a diff, it's a bit more of a comp complicated software. I think it's a bit more clunky. It's not as slick as rent manager in terms of the reporting and the manager has to be trained on how to use both softwares in conjunction with each other to avoid, you know, you, you can't have double bookings and stuff like that, which can, which can happen. Sure. But, but CamSol, we've kind of been using it as a tool where once this park hits, you know, near 90% occupancy on the true long term, we're just going to turn CamSpot off. So we, I think we use it maybe a little bit differently. Okay. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So you, you basically are allowing short-term rentals, but for two reasons, one is, you know, short-term cash, but second is with the goal of converting them into long-term. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Because from a management standpoint, that's really how we want to be because these parks, the size range that we're buying, you know, probably an average 50 lots, we can't really support, you know, really quality staff to be able to manage lots of short term, um, you know, and, and activities and, and stuff like that, that you'd have in a traditional campground. So, so, so yeah. 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 That's definitely, that's definitely a common challenge with running a campground RV is you've got to have either amenities or you got to have, you know, regular on-site staff to monitor some of these yeah. things and you know small properties mh is no different a, sm a small site count the challenge is you know i can't afford a 50 60 thousand dollar manager i can afford a twenty thousand dollar manager exactly. but it's hard to find a competent person for twenty thousand a year right. so that's where that's where consolidation in a one general region can help because they can share yes. numerous properties so how have you been able to do that i know you've got you know quite a few of your properties are within an hour's drive um so how, how are you able to find those and in, in such a you know short radius it's really been from our um from an acquisitions perspective we've tried to be really targeted in terms of the list that we have and the owners and the kind of properties that we want to buy we take more of like a i guess a, a sniper approach versus like a shotgun or whatever you know we have so what we've done is <clears throat> after we acquired the first one um we just immediately started databasing very heavily the parks that are within an hour away from that one and that way, when we call those owners, it's now it's a much easier phone call um, being somebody that owns in that market. A lot of times these owners, as you know, they live you know, in the park or they might live nearby in a lot of cases. So kind of we've kind of used it as a tool to been able to build rapport with them. And we do a lot of, um, you know, aggressive off market marketing. You know, we, we do a, a ton of cold calling. We send out uh, mailers every quarter and we, we talk to brokers, of course, but um, it's really been just building a relationship with with these owners, just one at a time, and 
Um, it was great. Like on, on, on one of our recent acquisitions, we were able to meet the owner um, at, our, at, our, at our other park, which is only 10 minutes away in the clubhouse. And just, you know, that just builds huge amounts of credibility with them. And, and then um, sure. that's kind of how we've been able to do it, just really aggressively focusing on, on those areas. Okay. Now it makes sense. So what would you say of, of your marketing tactics? I mean, obviously if you can get them on site, that helps a lot from rapport, but cold calls versus postcards versus other tactics. What do, what do you think is most successful? Yeah. Most successful for us has definitely been the cold calling, um, you know, including our storage facilities. We've acquired, I think 15 or 16 properties, about 25% of them have came from direct mail. So we do really like the direct mail because, you know, once you build out the list, it's not that hard to just, um, you know, enhance your letter and then keep on sending it out. And it, it a lot of, and it does generate those inbound calls, but it's really been just, just the cold calling. Um, that's been the big one for us. Um, I used to do it in the beginning. Now my partner, Simone does it and she's does an amazing job at it. And um, that, yeah, that, that's been how we've been able to source 90% of our deals. Has missed okay. So you guys are cold calling yourselves actually, instead of using a VA, you're, you're going straight from, straight from the first tranche yourself, first shot, first shot. Exactly. And I think the reason why we're doing that is because we have that really targeted approach right now. So we wouldn't want to waste a valuable lead on a park that's maybe 20 minutes away from one of ours on a VA introduction, because right. maybe I think our strategy is just a little bit different than, than some, you know, maybe somebody else's. So, so we're actually doing those calls ourselves. I mean, there's probably going to be a point where that just isn't scalable anymore, but at least for, for now and, and kind of what we're doing today, it's, it's definitely working. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely going to be more effective than a VA. It's just, you, you know, you can't, you can't make five phone calls at once. You can't make a thousand phone calls a day. Right. Um, so some people choose to go the the shotgun approach and it yep. works for them. And some people choose right. to do the more targeted approach and it uh, works for, can work as well, obviously. Exactly. So what about parks that you have that are hybrid MHRV? How do those work together? Or do you, ba do you basically just treat your RVs as if they're MH? So what we love about some of about the hybrid parks is um, it, it kind of allows us to, to fall into the, the RV park classification of laws as opposed to the MH classification here in Florida. So even though we have mobile homes in them, as long as we keep them below a certain percentage, then um, we, we become regulated like RVs. Um, and in those, yeah, we treat the RVs almost just like mobile homes. They're all long-term, um, you know, they're, they're there on an annual basis. And generally we have two different rent levels. Usually the, uh, we actually price the RVs a little bit higher than the mobile homes. Um, but yeah, I would say, yeah, we have like, yeah, out of our hybrid parks, we have maybe, we have three of them that are about, usually about third MH and then the other two thirds have been RV. So and in some cases, our plan is to slowly bring in park models and just to make them more, more permanent, mainly from a, we think that's going to help us uh, obtain maybe better financing that, that down the road. Should we, Fill up, we fill them up ninety percent plus with park models. Maybe we can get some sort of agency financing on the back end. So we've we've slowly been doing that at a couple of parks, um, but yeah, we we really like the hybrids a lot. Yeah, the MH is definitely going to be more helpful in the financing because RVs just it, obviously it, it's it, it can be by nature mobile, where the mobile homes yeah. don't seem don't seem to be. Um, so that's interesting. You have kind of the you kind of have the best of both worlds in, in those hybrids where you've you've got the lower regulation via RV, but you're treating the RVs like MH. Um, so you're making the RV residents put the utilities in their name and everything just like a long-term MH renter. If if it's a park where the electricity can be direct build, which we have somewhere it's like that with RVs where they actually do sit up with the power company, that's our favorite. 
and but we can run pretty lean from the expense side there but but most of them are are not there where we have our own meters and you know we we, we build back electric okay. water and sewer yep yep okay got it so interesting how are you how are you able to get better rent on the rv is it just because they're competitiveness in the market because those people obviously are more flexible where they can drive down the street that's kind of surprising unless it's just supply and demand yeah i think it's just supply and demand just because there's um because you know kind of even though our model is is annual stays um you know come come the winter season you know most rv parks in florida that that cater to that they, they generally start increasing their rents quite a bit so in general, I think maybe because the tenant doesn't have to make the investment into buying, you know, into actually buying a mobile home, you can kind of price it a little bit higher, though we've been playing with the idea of being higher on the mobile home side since those can't really move as easily, and maybe being lower on the RV side but, but thankfully I mean at least in our markets where the demand is high enough on the RV side, we've we've priced the RVs higher. Got it. Okay. Well, good stuff. So what other you know lessons can you share about you know whether about Florida or about the hybrid because you know that's you know a unique niche to be able to do you know the hybrid in one in one general location so I'm just curious uh, are there other tips for our listeners yeah I would say maybe if you know if you're if you're MH focused I mean definitely op open up to to RV as well I mean just be very selective about it because um, you know I think that the traditional RV park is definitely not like the kind that that we buy but but the ones that we buy and, and that you know you you'll come across they they really you know do operate very similarly to a mobile home park i mean you'll you'll find residents who've been in there for 10 20 years um and and like i said earlier the revenues will, will fluctuate minimally and and you know you can do things to, to make those rv sites more permanent if you're kind of concerned about the the transient aspect of it you can require the residents to install skirting on their homes or you know, you could bring in park models and, and, you know, those are going to be tied down kind of, you know, basically just a small mobile home. And so I would say if you're really, you know, strongly focused on MH, I would probably still consider selectively opening up to RV as well. Okay. Now RVs are, you know, naturally going to be smaller than mobile homes. So, I mean, are most of your parks senior only or, you know, individuals versus families? I feel like it's hard to have a family of five in an RV, whereas it's, that's standard in a mobile home. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say, yeah, we have, we have one RV park that's entirely 55 plus, but all, all the other ones are, are all ages. I mean, it's just, I guess just in general, the majority of the, the demographic who's living in an RV full time is not a family. Um, but, but a lot of times it is young, it is younger people. So we do, we do like to keep them all ages that way, you know, we can be open to more customers. Um, sure. Yeah, right. So, yeah, no, that's kind of that's kind of our method too, is just be open, be open to all agencies, have more customers. And we've got a couple parks that are almost all seniors, but that's just kind of the nature yeah. of what they've become. They're not designated as 55 plus and we're right. open to others that we even put a playground in, you know, things like that. So. Yeah. And I think, uh, cause we have some mobile home parks and we have one RV park that's 55 plus, and then we have some that are all ages. I think with the 55 plus, I think sometimes it can, I mean, I think it's a different set of problems that you get from those residents versus the families with the 55 plus, we get a lot, a lot more scrutiny in terms of, are we doing things the right way as far as, um, you know, legal paperwork and stuff like that. We, we get more complaints if the grass isn't, isn't mowed properly, that kind of thing versus, but the, with the families, we get, 
you know, somebody bringing in, you know, five guests that end up becoming, um, you know, our new residents in, in the matter of a month, or you get, you know, a bunch of cars that are parked on a lot, you know, basically halfway in the street. So, uh, but I, I, and, but my concern with the senior parks long-term is the sensitivity towards the rent increases. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that'd be a, probably a common, you know, stereotype, if you will, on the 55 plus is that, they have more free time, so they're more nitpicky on right. yards and conditions. The pro is they probably take care of their yards better. The con right. is they, if you don't take care of the common areas, they're in your kitchen. Yeah, and right. then I've had that happen too. They like I think they actually read the lease. Where a lot of people, yeah, right. I'm like, I don't know if they actually read this. You know, sure. um, older people tend to read it in Florida too. There, a lot of the parks, the older people are um, pretty affluent and yep. you know well educated, and they vote, which is part of the reason there's a lot of restriction. Yeah, restrictions on uh, MH within the state of Florida. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. Good. So what would you say would be one of some of the you know, key lessons learned as you've, you know, from your first park to today or maybe a mistake made that you, you know, we won't make the next time? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, try to get your, your technology right from the beginning. I mean, even in your first park and Theoretically, you could run it, you know, with a Google spreadsheet, but that's not really going to scale very well going forward. So, you know, do things from, from that perspective from the beginning. So set up rent manager right away if that's your, your software of choice. Definitely implement and mandate online payments if you can in your state. Um, you know, even from a phone system standpoint, you know, don't, don't use your cell number. Use a, in the beginning, we were using Grasshopper, which um, is not where it, it just we had to recently stop using it. It just wasn't working well. Now we switched to GoToConnect, which is, uh, I think they're owned by the same company, but they're more sophisticated. Um, you know, we started using that, that right away. So I would say um, kind of get your, you know, get your technology right from the beginning so that you can scale with it. Um, also, maybe a mistake that I made is um, I, I, didn't, um, I didn't hire a regional manager soon enough. So I was spending, you know, so many hours a day just on the phone with on-site managers constantly. And it was just, it was just wasn't scalable at all. And now that we have consolidated, you know, most of our parks in one area, we hired a regional manager and that's, that's really um, helped free up a lot of my time. And she does a much better job than I do at implementing a lot of the, the operational things that I wanted to do, but just didn't have the time to. No, that's good stuff. So I actually was in a meeting earlier today where somebody was talking about go to connect versus grasshopper. What is it? What's the key We've used Grasshopper. I haven't had. I, don't, I always say I haven't had a problem with it, but I don't know what I'm missing. Right? What What is the key feature from with GoTo that's better? You know, I I because Simone she she handles most of our our tech, so I don't know the specific key features that are better. But the biggest error that was happening with Grasshopper is we have like we had 15 or 16 Grasshopper phone numbers, and they were always forwarding to the wrong to to the wrong numbers. They would forward um, to the manager at, at our park in Alabama instead of the one in Ocala or they would forward to my phone because I was set up on the account somewhere. So we kept getting everyday calls that were getting crossed across our different really? properties. And, um, and now with GoToConnect, that just isn't happening, which I, I don't know why, because it's, um, you know, I'm sure they have some overlap being that they're owned by the same company. I think with GoTo, it also records the calls as well. I think maybe Grasshopper does that too, but I know there was a few other features that we preferred over it, but really it was because our, just, our calls just kept getting crossed. It was really screwing us up. Okay, got it. it any other any other tech platforms you recommend as far as you know, project management, time cards, anything like that, besides property management and phone? 
Yeah, I would say a, a recent implementation, maybe over the last six months has been monday.com. And that has um, completely just changed our operations. Um, because before, you know, each manager would have different tasks that would come up on a daily or weekly basis. And I would simply text it to them or email it to them. And of course, they would never get done because we know we all get hundreds of text and emails a day. And so now with Monday, we put it on the board, it's tracked, they can mark when it's done, I can check in, they can submit photos. So that has completely changed our operations, just having a Monday board for every property and then having that categorized a bit further. Um, that's been really good. Something we're doing now with rent managers, we're setting up automatic email reminders. So when, when people are late, they're now getting hit with multiple emails and we haven't set up the text yet, um, which I think requires some other integration, which we're gonna look into, but I think that's gonna help a lot um, as far as, uh, you know, just different, as far as just creating more touch points with our residents, letting them know that, hey, it's, you know, you have a, you have a balance, you know, please, please reach out to us and, and kind of, yeah, that kind of thing, so. Yeah, those are, yeah, we, we use some of those same tools. They're definitely helpful. It's just, I'm kind of a dinosaur. I feel like at times I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm content with what I've got. And then somebody will have a new shiny object, like, okay, let's look at a demo. Okay, let's try right. it. And it's like, it always seems to be a little bit better. I remember when I was resistant to uh, Microsoft Teams. I'm like, oh, I already have OneDrive. I already have Google Drive. I already have Zoom. I already have Dropbox. And, and it's right. like, no, no, let's try Teams. Oh, now it's like, man, I can't live without it. And then it's like, yeah, exactly. money.com great stuff and exactly. different integrations with different softwares it's like it really does really does make life easier once you once you get all the kinks worked out and get the training done on it yeah and, and i heard you mention in another podcast i think it was something that you saw at a home show where they are maybe one of the, the mh shows where they were using virtual assistants to help field inbound calls i think and maintenance requests i think that'd be pretty cool because sometimes the on-site managers are not the best at getting back to people yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely the case, you know, pros and cons and recording the calls or tracking the calls in, in Grasshopper, for example, um, can help monitor some of that. And, you know, we do the occasional secret shopper. Sure. We'll send calls and emails to our managers uh, anonymously or, you know, through code name and then see how they respond. And then, you know, because we, we had to put it together like an email etiquette policy, which I thought was wow. just common sense. You know, you're 18 years old, you're an adult you know how to do these things, but it's like, no, I mean, I remember, you know, a, a simple example was we sent the manager a request. Um, hey, I'm looking for a, uh, a trailer in your, in your court. Do you have anything? And they should say, we have several manufactured homes available or uh, right. thank you for reaching out, Nick. We do not currently have anything available, but we do have a three bed, two bath coming open at the end of the month. Would sure. you like to schedule an appointment or what are you specifically looking for? You know, instead the manager just responded, nope. That was it. I just said, <laughs> nope. Like, what? you you know, didn't track the lead, didn't call right. them, didn't email them, didn't, didn't, you know, use, you know, polite language, um, yeah. et cetera. So it's like, okay, just be, you got to do a little better than that. So we yeah. just make, you know, make a policy out of it. It's like, I feel like almost everything we do, it's like, okay, time for another policy. And it's like, good grief. Sure. You know, you get, at some point, it's like, you just say, brush your teeth. You, you know, you don't have to say like, Find toothpaste. Wait, open drawer. Find toothpaste. Pick right. up toothpaste. Unscrew cap. So it's kind of a difficult balance between how much do you, you know, big brother micromanage everything versus just let people, you know, run with stuff. Um, and we've done you know, push and pull on in, in modification a hundred times, and we don't have we don't have it all figured out at this point. But it's like you know, trial and error. You occasionally you find something like that's a better 
method. We should do that. Or that's a better tool. We should use that. And and then, it's, you know, as soon as we get used to one, it's like, well, maybe we should try something different. Sure. Right. <laughs> continual, continual learning curve. That's for sure. Yep. Email etiquette. Yeah, I'm going to write that one down. So. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I, I was surprised that, that I needed to write it down or needed to implement it, but it was like, geez, basic stuff. And, you know, and, you know, just, you know, people come, especially a lot of the park greeters or park managers, they have different backgrounds. Some of them have never had, um, you know, strong education. Some of them never had a yeah. office job. So yeah. attaching a document to an email, you know, we have a greeter that we said, Hey, they're going to bring you, um, a cashier's check for this new home they're buying. We, they, they don't want to get a loan. They got the money. They're going to bring you a $12,000 cashier's check. Here's the exact address to mail it to. Send it via this service through FedEx with yep. tracking. Send the receipt and, and scan and email us a copy of the, the X number of pages of the contract, yep. the bill of sale, and the cashier's check. And then we get the FedEx, and it went through UPS with no tracking, 10-day instead of overnight or whatever, and it shows up. And inside is a photocopy of a cashier's <laughs> check and a photocopy of the title. Nice. To which we said, where's the real title? Well, we're holding on to it. Like, no, you're supposed to give that to the buyer. And then where's the cashier's check? Well, I'm holding on to it. I didn't want to mail it. What if it would have got lost? Right. <laughs> and we're like, how are we going to cash it back at accounting if you're holding it? They're like, I didn't think about that. And then we get a copy of the contract and it is, uh, you know, nine pages of photos from a flip phone. Sure. All on it, you know, all in an email. So it's like, okay, we need some basic training on some of these things. And that's just the challenge with new staff. And, you know, some, some staff is, you know, lower skilled and yeah, you got to try to make do. Um, but yeah, we've just unfortunately had to learn, you know, what needs to be trained on. And we used to ask people, like, what do you want to be trained on? And that didn't go very well because they, mm -hmm. they don't know, they don't know. So like, here's required training and here's remedial training, you know, Monday.com, for example, was a huge challenge for some of our construction folks and property managers to get mm -hmm. up to speed on. So we had daily, quote, optional training from wow. 8 to 9 a.m. every day for like three weeks. And, and I said, you don't have to go in the training, but if you don't know how to use it right and you're not in the training, that's a problem. So some people went to the training every day. Some people went twice and they're like, this is easy. I got it. And they moved yeah. on. Um, so that's kind of how we've try to get through some of those challenges is optional training and required training depending on the the, the task and the person yeah no, i think that's a great idea um, because yeah that was definitely a challenge for us too because like you said some of the on-site managers park readers they're not they're not the most tech savvy and now with before it would be me having to go and you know train them over zoom or whatever and we're in person because i you know i live only an hour away from most of our properties uh, but now with the regional manager, now that's, you know, that's her job is to make sure that they're trained on, on, on the tech. So that, that, that's been good. But um, Bert, I have a question for you. Why, why do you do, or I, I think you do some park owned home rentals. Um, can you, what is the reason for that? Well, I mean, in general, it's easier to rent a home than sell a home. So I'm willing to rent some, but I, I look at it judiciously based on the property. So for example, uh, I have a small park in Des Moines and it came with five vacant park owned homes. We don't have, we don't have a full-time manager in Des Moines. We can't afford a full-time manager on that property. We don't have a, a local maintenance person. 
So we said we don't want to be in the home business in Des Moines. And we would if we had a 200-site park or even a 70-site park. This is a 20-site park. Came with five vacant homes. So for those, we said for sale only. And we got a ton of people who wanted to rent them. And we said for sale only. And instead of renting them in a day, we sold them in a month. But we got them all sold. And if they if somebody sells us a park, a home, or we get an eviction or something, and we end up getting their home, it's for sale only. Yeah. Other markets, like in Kansas City, I have local management. I have local maintenance. I was like, all right, the park came with 20 park-owned homes. I'm like, well, I had to bring in one park. I had to bring in 60 homes. I was like, well... I can rent 60 faster than I can sell them, but I can't rent all 60. I got to keep this park is 93 spaces. So I had to keep it below, I think 32 to it was 32 was my max in order to get an agency refi at 35% park on home. So I allowed myself and my manager to basically rent one, sell two, rent one, sell two. They brought them in being cognizant of uh, those agency thresholds. And then double wides are much nicer. People want, everybody wants double wide. So the double wides were for sale only. Um, because I, I could rent them in a minute, but I had to get them sold. And then I had other homes that were, you know, just because of that lot, it was, a uh, you know, 14 by 56. Well, that's a tougher house than the 1676 tougher house to, to, to move. So on that home, like, all right, I'll let you rent that one. Um, hmm. now from a financial standpoint, obviously more top line revenue on the park on home rentals, but certainly more, uh, expenses and more management, more maintenance. In a perfect world, I think I'd have no rental houses. Um, but in order to infill in in, in a sizable amounts, I got to get homes in. If I got to get the homes in, I got to I got to lease them up. And some people like the park and home model. I mean, I think it's a, actually a growing portion of the industry. I just sold the park uh, I don't know, three four weeks ago, and we had a pretty good percentage of rentals. I mean, out of thirty or so, this was like thirty occupied out of thirty six. And or 32 out of 36, I think we probably had 12 or 15 rentals. So pretty good percentage, but it's like, it's hard to get it down to zero. And with, unless you're on, especially on infill, unless you're going to take a bath on some of the homes, depends on the market. Right. But, um, so I've had some parks where I've said no rentals. I don't have any that are all rentals. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of why is, is to get occupancy faster. We then try to convert them. We priced right. them, um, as a rental more uh, expensive than if they could buy them so people are incentivized to buy them but he and i and in one state i can only allowed to do a security deposit of 1x but all my other states i'm allowed to do security deposit of at least 2x so we require a 2x security deposit on every rental um which gives you some nice cover um, and it also it also screens people a little better and it, it makes it harder to rent which yeah. makes it harder which makes it easier to sell so it's like, look, if you're going to rent this house for a thousand a month, it's going to cost three thousand to get in the door. How about you put down thirty eight hundred? You buy it, you save a hundred bucks a month, and build yeah. equity. So that's kind of how we tackle it. You know, everybody has their own methods. I, I don't know that mine's the best. That's just kind of you know to your question. That's kind of why we went that route. Got it. Got it. That I don't have any RVs that we rent. We have, we've had some parks that had RVs and we just sell those. Um, but I don't have very many RVs. I don't know. I mean, I have the whole portfolio. I probably have 20 or not, probably not even that, you know, so not very many, um, over a thousand sites, you know, so a very small percentage. Yeah. Yeah. For, for us on, on the parks that we've bought that have park owned homes, because, um, they've just been really old housing stock. I mean, you know, um, fifties to eighties to and they're, these are just older Florida parks, our lots, 
you know, could not fit a 16 by 76 ever. Um, you know, our intent, and because our lot rents are high enough here in, in the markets that we're in, and from a management standpoint, we've, we've elected to, to, to try to have zero park on homes. I'm sure if we had to bring in 60, like you did into one park, maybe it'd be a little bit different. Um, yeah. So I mean, for me, I have two parks in central Missouri that are right down the street and those parks, um, they, I bought them. They're like one's 47 and one's 48. And they were both about 25 to 27 occupied. So, and they were all tenant owned homes pretty much. So for, on those, um, it's, I can bring in the homes. We got them both about full at this point. I can rent a higher percentage because I'll still be under my agency threshold. So that's part of, you know, for me, part of my goal was get the park to agency ready as soon as possible. And that means renting some of them. And that means just being cognizant of that ratio. So on those two parks, um, because I had a good starting point of, you know, zero out of 26 park owned home, I can rent quite a few of the last 21 in order to uh, at each park in order to get them there. And you know, agency typically wants 50 sites, but in that case, I got two in the same, same ownership group, same management group. And within, I think the threshold was at one point a mile, then three miles, mine hmm. are both within that threshold. So they can be financed as a scattered site and I can get, I can come under the 50 threshold and still qualify. Because together they're ninety five, right, right, yeah. From uh, from infill standpoint, we, we haven't done too much infill, but the parks where we have done, um, it's basically been used HUD approved park models, um, because that's the only that's the only type of house that would fit on on most of our lots because the homes are so old and the, you know with setbacks and the parks are so old. Um, and so generally those are, well, there's always one bedroom. So we, we, we don't get too, too many families, even in our family parks that, that are moving in. Got it. Yeah. Are you, are you able to sell the park models at a profit in that market? You know, um, no, we're generally losing money on every, on every home sale. Um, you know, I guess it's just the, the name. I mean, we'll try to recapture some of it. Say that, say the home cost us 30,000. Um, you know, to, between setup, transport, and to renovate it, uh, we might get a cash buyer in at twenty thousand, and then we'll finance that other ten, um, just to try to recapture some of it, build some additional income. But we we seldom ever make money on a home sale, unfortunately. Maybe if we if we if we had a financing program, you know, that was partnered with us, maybe maybe it'd be a little bit different. But as of now, we're just trying to move them as quickly as possible. Um, at least in the parks where we where we are using this strategy. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've had a couple park models come through, and I've, I'm just not a big fan of them. I, if you have a big lot, if you got small lots, you got to do what you got to sure. do. I'm not a big fan of them because they're so expensive relative to square footage. It's like I don't know. I don't think I could sell them for a profit right. anywhere. You know, it's hard enough selling you know a 76 footer at a profit in a lot of markets. So that's why I try to get. So for me, I'd rather have a 95 home that's 70 feet than a 2020 that's 48 feet and then right. obviously the 90s home also you know a lot of those park models if you get a new one they're more expensive than they're more expensive than a lot of the new lot, yep. bigger homes it's just yep. um they're, they're nice but I, mean, I had i had one lot in st charles missouri i only had 40 feet of room mm -hmm. and it was high dollar market nice park um and it was the last lot I had to get to 100% occupancy. So I really wanted to get it full. The site was, you know, worth about 80, 80, 85,000 a site. 
in that market and I was going to sell the park. So I was like, man, if I could find a dang home, I got an extra 80,000. Um, and we could, we looked everywhere for a 40 footer and it was so hard. Finally found a used 40 footer after like 500 <laughs> leads. It was crazy. And it squeezed it in there and then got it and sold the park you know, shortly thereafter. But I was about to have to cave and buy a park model, but it was going to be like $90,000 for the dang home. It was like, um, you know, and finding, finding one for like 38, it was probably worth 30, but found one for 38, got it in there for all in for 50 or whatever. And it was in good shape. Nice. Yeah. For, I think here in Florida, we're able to find just a ton of used park models. I think, cause there's just so many, um, so many RV parks here that, that have them in there because, um, you know, people like having park models in RV parks cause it's a nice winter home for, for, you know, for, for a snowbird. So we, you know, we, we got lucky on a, on a park that, that we bought uh, last year that, that we've been infilling homes. Uh, we were able to buy 10 park models out of one park that was in South Florida where they were nice. the owner of this park. He, it was an RV park, but he wanted all the permanent units, all the park models gone. He just wanted only units that could be trained. And I guess that was his business model. He was very close to the beach. So we got 10 out of one park, which was, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> All right, man. Well, Nick, any other, any other thoughts you want to share tips before we go? And if not, uh, how can people find you? Yeah, I, I just, I, I think this is, I think it's a, it's a great industry. Definitely. If you're focused on MH, um, which, which we certainly are, uh, maybe open up to uh, RV as well. Um, don't be afraid to make cold calls and send out direct mail, start building your list, right. You know, start building your list right away. Um, our website is libertycapgroup.com. My email is nick at libertycapgroup.com, or you can uh, text me at a uh, 813-504-4395. All right, man. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for it. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.